Hello everyone and welcome to the seventh digital debate brought to you monthly by the International Civil Society Centre. I'm Vicky Tung, Head of Futures and Innovation here at the Centre and the moderator for this particular event. Today's debate will put the spotlight on cybersecurity, asking whether this is a blind spot for civil society actors on the internet. Here at the Centre, we've recently been talking about cybersecurity with CEOs from our sector, and I've really been struck by the sheer extent to which cyber attacks are actually happening, the sophistication of the attackers and their methods, the levels of vulnerability in many organisations, and the extensive and damaging impacts they can have. These huge potential risks for organisational reputation, business continuity and the ramifications for staff members mean that attacks are also incredibly sensitive and challenging to talk about openly. So they are happening widely but not discussed that widely and there may also be avenues of support and solidarity which organisations equally don't know about. So these are the, some of the dynamics and potential blind spots which we'll explore with our three great panellists today. So joining us today, I'm delighted to welcome Suha Mohammed, the Strategy and Partnerships Lead at Apti Institute, who's currently joining us from Bangalore in India. Adrian Auger, Chief Operations Officer of the Cyberpeace Institute, who's based in Geneva, Switzerland. And Anthony Wadlow, Controller of Governance and Assurance for Sightsavers, who is based near London in the UK. So welcome to you all. Uh, shortly, I'd like to invite individual inputs from each of you on our topic, and then we'll move into some discussion and questions. But first, I'd like to open by asking each of you to very quickly define what you include in the spectrum of cybersecurity and cyber attacks in your work. So, uh, Suha, please go ahead. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Um, very, very broadly, I think we view cybersecurity as one among many of the other issues we look at, and we look at it within sort of a rights-based framework. So how we look at the security and privacy of data and information, and of course, the technical infrastructure that underlies it, but also how this extends to the rights of people of which this sort of data reflects realities and experiences and opportunities for. Um, so looking at how those sort of two intersect around rights and privacy as well. And I think the way that we go about enabling or thinking about interventions around cybersecurity have to then be also multi-dimensional multi and then the way they uh, are focusing on you know not just creating technical safeguards but also looking at legal and policy measures as well as how we can look at the socioeconomic dynamics of you know data rights as well as awareness of these rights things like literacy around um, you know what we can do as individuals and have greater sort of power in the data economy so from the perspective of Opti we look at cybersecurity as uh, a broader theme and sort of a indication of a larger systemic issue that's at play in the data economy and happy to jump into that a little bit further as we go along. Thanks, Suha. And Adrian, please, your thoughts on this. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Uh, look for us, cybersecurity, put simply, is, is security in cyberspace, right? But uh, we, like Suha, we look at it in the broader sense. And uh, from from the Cyber Peace Institute, we we also look at the connection with, with cyber peace. So cybersecurity, my explanation would be that it's really a state in which cyberspace needs to be. Uh, it's a state for citizens and digital citizens to enjoy cyberspace, right? So perhaps cyber defense has been all the, the measures necessary to achieve that state of, of uh, cybersecurity. Uh, cyber peace would be the step after where we actually define it as a cyber peace institute as existing when security, equity, and dignity 
are ensured in digital, digital ecosystem. So it goes really beyond just the technical uh, sense of the term. And so if you extrapolate that to also the cyber attacks, it's basically for us any harm that is being done to cyber peace. So it may be, of course, the technical attacks that we regularly hear about uh, in the news, but it may also be passive or active deliberate not, or not deliberate acts to harm cyberspace through inadequate laws, through shutdowns, through uh, oppression, through espionage and things like this. So that's in a nutshell how we, we view the topic. Thanks, Adrian. And uh, Anthony, please. Hi, thank you. Um, cybersecurity, for me, it's it's kind of the sharp and very visible edge of a much wider topic, which is information security. So the confidentiality, integrity and availability of data uh, and systems. So you can see cybersecurity is kind of a rapidly evolving envelope around this much older topic, which is information security. But in practice, we're seeing that it's really a blurred line between the kind of the existing control frameworks of an organization, which have changed through the pandemic and are now predominantly digital and the the historic kind of like technical hard edge cyber security which is very technically focused so it's becoming a very broad topic that's straying into information security and raising all these up in in profile and it we're going to find that it's a topic that encroaches on much more of our work and how we do things as organisations. Great. Thanks, guys, for that context. I think it's really useful as we move into the, your individual thoughts. So, Suha, please go ahead. Yeah, I think before jumping into sort of thoughts in, in general on the, the prompt, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the work we do at APTI. Uh, we're a public research organization based in India, and we look at the intersection of technology and society. And within that, we focus on how individuals navigate with, bargain with, and often just access technology. And I think one of the things that we think about cybersecurity is that it fits within a larger um, context of sort of what I mentioned before as I defined it, um, this idea that there are sort of real inequities in the data economy and a lack of transparency and accountability. Most of us as individuals have um, in being able to know sort of what data is collected on us, how and who it's shared with. Um, and I think this, this sort of manifests itself in the way that we see it most directly and in most um, sort of in a high impact way in the way that we see data breaches, et cetera. Um, and I think in context of civil society in particular, we see you know, this manifest very in, in ways that can be really malicious and really um, egregious, uh, particularly because civil society organizations are collecting such vulnerable data um, and sensitive data that belongs to often very marginalized communities. So the repercussions of these attacks can, you know, relate from right from you know, physical injury and harm to, you know, the denial of cons consequential services to, you know, an impact on livelihood, etc. And I think just responding to the, the broader prompt of um, civil society and whether it is truly a blind spot and cybersecurity, I think the, the context of whether cyber, whether civil society has to address all of these concerns on their own is, is one that, you know, we have to contend with uh, questions of capability and questions of, um, you know, awareness of, you know, what data ethics could look like in context of these organizations organizations. I think particularly in the Indian context, when we look at emerging regulations around data, there is a, a large focus on what nonprofits have to do for communities to be able to access rights, but also to make data readily available. So I think increasingly, this is something we're contending with uh, in the Indian context. And I think the way that we see it is how can civil society play an ally to, you know, providing a greater uh, avenue for, you know, 
whether it is maintaining the cybersecurity of the organization or empowering the individuals or the beneficiaries of these of these larger companies to be able to access their rights, um, being you know be entitled to have digital rights, etc. So I think uh, you know very concretely, I think over the course of this debate, what I'd be interested in exploring is sort of three different dimensions of cybersecurity that relate to the work we do as well. So how we look at at an individual level how to empower individuals and communities to have sort of greater agency and transparency over their data to make these decisions and sort of minimize the possibility of these risks or vulnerabilities emerging at an organizational level. So how civil society like I said, can play the role of a guardian or an ally in, in this context and help maintain this sort of level of um, institutional resilience. So whether that is informing governance protocols or implementing te technical safeguards, you know, what is the foundation of resilience that needs to be that needs to be built in to also make sure that data is not extracted, you know, from beneficiary communities as well. And I think lastly, the last dimension to focus on, you know, around cybersecurity questions, especially with respect to civil society, is how we can build, you know, capacity and capability at an ecosystem level, right? So I think a lot of organizations and nonprofits, specifically in the global South, um, you know, really struggle with or are very nascent in their stage of digital transformation or, you know, digitization in general. So how do we start thinking about really simple ways in which to have these conversations, not only at an organizational level to protect staff, but also, like I said, with beneficiaries. And so I think the last thing that I'll, you know, really quickly say is that as we talk about cybersecurity, I think we have to expand the conversation a little bit to, to, to look at sort of digital rights more broadly and then how to embed concepts or principles of data ethics in a way that isn't really paternalistic, but that really encourages participation and collaboration in the way that these, um, these processes or protocols are shaped. And then I'll leave it at that and excited to sort of explore these emerging themes as we go along. Thanks very much, Suha. Adrian, please share your thoughts. So I'm Adrian, and uh, you mentioned CEO of the Cyberpeace Institute. And uh, I'll start by telling a little, a little bit of a story. A bit more than a year ago, we received an email from an NGO called uh, Roots of Peace that is uh, based in the U.S., but um, helping Afghan farmers transform minefields into vineyards. And they were, in essence, telling us that they had been hacked and that they had lost over a million dollars in USAID funding. We've been working with them ever since, trying to... Uh, retrieve those funds and it's been a very interesting case for us and basically what happened was they they were as a small NGO not used to uh, having very advanced cybersecurity controls and so they had been reusing a couple of passwords and attackers were able to extract those passwords from a data leak and were then able to uh, impersonate uh, the CFO and order a couple of uh, wires uh, being sent out of, of their bank accounts. So that totaled to over a million dollars and you know it's been difficult for the NGO that the, the CEO and the president have had to take a, a loan against their uh, own house to be able to maintain the, maintain the NGO and What's interesting for us is that a couple of months earlier, probably have heard of the Colonial Pipeline case, basically led the attackers to uh, make out with about $2 million. So a similar amount of money. Uh, yet on one case, you had you know, uh, a small NGO, uh, FBI couldn't really help that much, uh, producing Hong Kong either, and the money is pretty much pretty much gone. And there's not, not so much support that could, could be provided to them. And you know, not much risk taken by the attackers. On the other side, you had um, Biden and Putin meet over over this in Geneva. You had the FBI all over the case, and the amount of money stolen was pretty pretty similar. So this made a thing that actually an you know, NGO like Wits of Peace, and I, I see many NGOs uh, here that provide critical services to people in a similar way. That at the end of the day, Colonial Pipeline provided a critical service in the U.S. It's just that 
In emerging economies, oftentimes critical services are provided by NGOs, uh, yet they're not protected as well as critical service companies or operators uh, in, 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 the Western, in the Western world. And that we think is, is, is very contradictory with the vision of cyber peace we, we, we have, which needs to start with the most, with the most valuable. So we've started to basically do a, a lot more work helping NGOs, in particular humanitarian NGOs, improve their cybersecurity. And we've we've gone to realize that actually there's a lot of interesting things for attackers in, in that in that sector, right? There's obviously money. Humanitarian sector represents about thirty billion dollars raised annually. The entire NGO economy, I think, is around a trillion. So that's a lot of money. That's of interest to criminals. But there's also data that's of interest to to governments and and criminals can monetize that data, selling it later to to governments. Unfortunately. There's a high interest and very low defenses, right? I think it's only one in 10 NGOs that trains their staff around cybersecurity, uh, only one in four that monitors the network, only one in five that has any kind of cybersecurity plan. So there's a lot of awareness that needs to uh, be built, a lot of capabilities to how you were talking about earlier that needs to be provided. And that's why we, we've developed a program called the Cyber Peace Builders, which is essentially a corporate volunteering program. So we take experts, cybersecurity experts from the private sector, we ask them to volunteer about 40 hours a year, that's five days after five days a year, to go and provide free help to uh, NGOs that provide humanitarian services. Um, we've launched that uh, a couple of months ago. It's readily available to, you know, if there, there's interest in your NGO to start, you know, kickstart the discussion of, of uh, around cybersecurity. So how you're mentioning that necessity to start having these discussions because many NGOs are just not aware uh, that, you know, they may even be a, a threat. Cyberspace builders really are there for that. And just maybe a, a world around how that fits into our vision for cyberspace. We think that by basically helping those organizations that are on the forefront of providing critical services to vulnerable communities, we're able, we're going to be able to redefine a little bit the general cybersecurity narrative that you read about, in, particularly in the West, that revolves around technology, around, around governments, around espionage, around, around uh, big corporations, and actually start talking a lot more about what matters in cyberspace, and that is people. So when we're able to draw a bigger connection between people and, and cyber attacks, we think that we have a chance at basically influencing, the, influencing sorry, decision makers uh, in the corporate world, but also in, in the pub, public sector. That's why Cyber PC Institute is based in Geneva, also to be close to, to the UN and the GGE process, etc. Uh, and we think that that narrative is very powerful. We don't talk enough about you know the human cost of cyber attacks. And you know, just last week, I think, uh, if you read the news, you saw that there is unfortunately a, a baby that lost um, uh, their life, its life, uh, during a, a ransomware attack uh, in, 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 the, in the US. So that seems to be the first actual case. There were some previous uh, warnings uh, in the past month, but that seems to be the very first case of, of a, a, an actual death due, due to a cyber attack. And we really don't want to see that trend worsening. So. That's yeah, our vision for cyber peace, and hopefully we can we can work together to build it together. Thanks, Adrian. I think what I'm hearing from both you and um, Suha is the need to take a much broader approach, but also to look very much at the, the people aspects and not just the, the kind of technology and techn technological aspects. Uh, Anthony, I'd like to come to you next as one of those organisations that has had has looked at this and, and invested in kind of response plans to on on cybersecurity. Um, could you share some of your experiences, please? 
Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm Anthony Waddle. I'm the controller of governance and assurance at SiteSavers. Uh, so I manage the compliance, governance, IT infrastructure and information security teams. So I've I've been through various instances, exercises and projects inside and outside the organization relating to specifically data protection, but also cybersecurity. So what I'm aiming to do is give you kind of the operations perspective within a sector organization. I hope that one of the takeaways is that you'll have the confidence to engage in a fairly technical topic. For you as the audience, cybersecurity is going to impact each of you and the way that you work and drive change. So looking at one of the, the questions of this debate, which is, are CSOs doing enough to secure their operations and, and the safeguard the data of the groups we support? I think it'd be very unfair to say no, but we can reframe it and say that, yeah, more can be done and we can certainly catch up fast. So looking at CSOs, um, which is important, they're lean, we're creative and very specialised. However, with that specialisation focus means that some of the technical security skills are rare or those who have them have multiple other responsibilities. And the financial burden of technology and lack of funding means that many of the services that we rely on are typically outsourced. So where's the risk? Well, the risk to those whose data we hold is becoming increasingly evident, and, and Suha spoke to that. It's important to look at the risk to the CSO. In some cases, this could be an existential risk. Third parties, we're relying more and more on outsourced services, which often the only viable way to manage data collection, payroll, staff messaging, but it raises the surface area of the organization and makes us more reliant on the security and controls of others. SiteSavers itself was a victim, along with many other organizations, the Blackboard CRM data breach last year. We chose a reputable vendor, we performed our due diligence, we had the correct processes in place, but it didn't stop us from being impacted. Now, business interruption, even the most minor cybersecurity breach, even one that you're not responsible for, can cause significant disruption to business operation and a huge amount of pressure on staff and stress. Treasury processes, payroll, core systems may all be suspended during an investigation, and those systems and processes and the data that sits behind them might be completely offline for weeks or months, and you might have to rebuild it from scratch if, if that's at all possible. Financial loss is probably the most obvious of the risks, but cybercrime perpetuated theft is at an all-time high against CSOs. Social engineering attacks exploiting our now predominantly digital environment and financial processes are becoming all too common. Donor confidence for those of us who receive public support, the threat of data being lost may be a, a factor in their giving decisions, and likewise institutional donors. Their confidence can be rocked as a CSO undergoes the arduous task of investigation of their internal controls and processes post cyber incident. What can be done? Well, first off, don't panic. Well, may maybe panic a bit, but the core activities are pretty light on expenditure and can leverage those skills that we already have in the sector. So as addressing the risk, part of it involves reducing the impact of an incident. And this can be done through good data governance. So those of us who've been through GDPR will be familiar with some of these questions. Do we have the right data for the purpose we need it for? Are we holding too much? Are we sharing it with people we trust? And have we considered the security location retention period of the data in those shared locations? User access control. Only those who need access to their systems and data should have access. So taking a non sector organization example so in the private sector a marketing intern was given access to all of the organization's core systems when they were onboarded 
which was standard, happened for everyone. They included the organization's fund management system, the employee's password, which was password 1234, was guessed by a bad actor, and they used that to transfer funds outside of the organization. But there is support, so as agents mentioned, the Cyber Peace Institute, they're doing amazing work to address the risks and support the sector, but more can be done. There's, there's free resources out there that designed for the commercial sector, but cover the essentials of cybersecurity that we can leverage. So large projects can be extremely costly, but there's a lot of low hanging fruit us as a, uh, a sector can capitalize on and bring us up to speed. In the UK, there's the Cyber Essential Scheme, which is a government scheme which addresses the basics of cybersecurity. And the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK publishes guidance that's highly effective against most of the low-level threats that we'll be facing. But don't be afraid to engage. Don't let the, the technical details be a barrier for entry for your engagement. You don't have to have a deep technical literacy to take action and manage these risks. Now, I'll leave you with just a couple of questions to ask yourself. In your context and where you work, think what are your two most valuable data assets and can you answer the following two questions for yourself do you know where that data is and how many copies there are of it and where those copies are and do you know who has access and how to control that access thanks anthony oh, that's great so so some questions for people to ask themselves um but also i think very much your, your message is that there are there are avenues and it's uh, well people should be aware of the level of risk they should also look for support that is out there and not feel that they have to do it on their own. We've got some the opportunity for you to ask questions to each other based on the inputs that you've heard. So I'll just do a quick round to see what questions you'd like to ask and then we'll come to each of you in turn to, to answer. So Suha, did you have any questions for either Anthony or Adrian based on their inputs? I, I do have a, a question that, you know, that emerged, I think, with Adrian, um, as he mentioned, he, you know, Cyber Peace Institute works really closely with nonprofits. And I'm curious what the, the spectrum, spectrum of engagement looks like based on sort of where that NGO or nonprofit is, you know, in their sort of data journeys. And it's been a question that we've been exploring how to sort of start talking about this early enough before you start digitize your, your processes as well. So just curious about what that engagement looks like and how it differs. Thanks, Suha. So Adrian, hold that question in your head to answer later. And then can you ask your questions to either Suha or Anthony, please? Yeah, I, I had a question for, for Anthony. Uh, thanks a lot for your question, Suha, by the way. Uh, Anthony, I'm wondering if you could you know, speak about the, the challenges that you've encountered um, implementing security controls in an NGO. Very concise, thank you. Uh, and Anthony, what you'd like to know, please. Yeah, so I actually had two questions. Um, so open it up for either, but I think, um, so the first one with the sort of rise of sort of high profile cyber attacks and kind of the increasing awareness in the population of the power of data, we're seeing a kind of a change in the trust in the communities where we work when it comes to sharing data with us. And then my second question is uh, kind of looking at the pandemic uh, and at a technical side, have we seen a, a shift in the landscape of uh, the threats that we've faced uh, as CSOs? Great, thanks, Anthony. So, uh, Suho, could you perhaps speak to Anthony's question around trust and communities, please? So, I think I can speak from the Indian context, and um, the context I'm speaking from as well is that we we ran a privacy campaign, and it was one of um, India's sort of like consumer first sort of consumer focused privacy campaigns, and we were really trying to understand sort of what the shift in attitudes were, especially after sort of um, you know large documentaries like Netflix's Social Dilemma came out. 
when we saw this sort of change in, in fear around what these data breaches could look like at an individual level, and I think quite honestly at a community level, um, there's still quite a sort of high mistrust around uh, larger platforms, but I think there is a sense that, you know, if my data is out there, there's nothing I can do about it. So there's a sense of powerlessness and a sense of sort of, um, you know, lack of control over what can be done at this point in time. I think at a community level, and this varies, of course, with who we're, you know, who we're speaking about, I still think there isn't necessarily a lot of transparency around what data is being captured, when and how. So I think, although there are high profile data breaches in a and you know incidents like this that we're starting to hear about there there can be a lot more transparency and so i do think trust isn't necessarily broken as a result of this i think there is still a lot of passive data collection that happens um, to all of us when and we're sort of caught unaware so i would say that um you know while there is a greater sense of um, attention around these high profile cases it isn't a sort of personal connect to say that this might happen to me. And a big part of our learning with the privacy campaign is to just start to narrativize these conversations a little bit to indicate to communities or to individuals that, you know, this breach didn't just happen to a big company, this could happen to you and your data as well. And so making that connect and sort of narrativizing that um, in the context of what that could mean in your life was, you know, a big part of big part of our learning. And, and we realized that it actually didn't decrease trust um, as much as we thought it could. Thanks, Yuha. And I think that um, kind of goes back to some of your questions as well around uh, engagement. So Adrian, could you take that question about how to, how to engage and how early to engage organisations? And also please, Anthony's question around the changing landscape during the pandemic, uh, the changing threat landscape. Thank you very much. Okay, in terms of, you know, the, the services that we provide through the service builders and the maturity level of organisations that we help, um, it's, it's a wide range on both cases. So both accounts. For the um, cyber peace builders, we provide services before incidents. We try and raise awareness. We try and help NGOs develop uh, the right plan. We try and help them conduct tabletop exercises. We can, the builders can even offer uh, um, vulnerability scans all the way up to pen penetration tests. So there's really this idea of uh, raising awareness amongst the staff and the leadership that cybersecurity is a real threat that they need to be uh, on top of. We also offer a range of services post-incident. So if they have been hit, they have managed the incident, and you know, they're trying to recover, they're trying to have their, net, their network, they're trying to investigate the case, understand what happened, maybe liaise with the police authorities, that, that is something we can offer support uh, for too. Um, we can even you know, sometimes notify them that they've been attacked because we get a lot of data through our partners and sometimes NGOs as I mentioned, I think three out of four uh, don't monitor their networks. They may not even know that some of their infrastructure, for instance, is being used in an attack or is being targeted. And so we can even let them, let them know that that is the case. For instance, around the summer, we provided some support around uh, uh, spyware detection, right? Uh, and then we also provide the builders, the volunteers also provide non-technical support around things like insurance uh, um, discussions or legal discussions or coaching to the leadership, for instance, or even like, you know, communication stuff. Like if you want to put out a poster in the corridors of your of your NGO to raise awareness on cybersecurity, then we can, we can bring in professionals that have a background in design that work in a cybersecurity company or an InfoSec office in a large corporation that can dedicate some of their time to help, help you do that. Uh, the one thing that we don't do is incident response, right? Because this requires a timely, timely answer and it's not really compatible with a volunteering model. And so in terms of NGOs and the maturity level and you know the, the moment in which we, we reach them during their journey is, is quite quite uh, quite large to uh, Suha. We have organizations that 
invest, you know, that their IT budget is like 1% of their entire budget and cybersecurity is a chunk of that. Uh, and so they're really low level in terms of cybersecurity maturity. And those are the type of organizations that we'd ask us, hey, can I have, you know, 10 cybersecurity builders for the next three years? And that's when we explain to them that this program is there to help them kickstart their journey on cybersecurity. It's not there so that they can outsource their cybersecurity, you know, to a free to a free service, not how, how this should work, right? But it's great to have this initial conversation with them so that we can really help them pave the way, prioritize their investments as well, so they don't waste money on, on useless things. And and then we also meet up with actually like bigger organizations that are quite quite mature, but that have more specific needs, right? And so they 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 they're very thankful for the opportunity to be able to talk to to a very particular expert in something and to assess something a, a, a little bit more precise. Which is, okay, I hope that answers your question, Suha. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. And then Anthony, uh, yeah, so yeah, we have seen a shift in, in the threat landscape for sure. I think the pro- professionalization of attackers recently during the pandemic has been, has been quite a, I think quite difficult. I don't like to buy into, you know, scary tactics and scary everyone off. And it's been like the usual you know, strategy in cyber, like tell everyone it's going to be doomsday and then everything is, is worse than it was yesterday. But we have seen sophisticated, more sophistication in the tools they use. We have seen the use of attacks that are called supply chain attacks. Basically, you go through a technology provider and you attack through that channel. So, you know, you leverage the trust that an organization puts in their technology providers. Uh, to get into the end target, which makes it very, very difficult as an organization to protect yourself. And I think often you have some great examples you can maybe elaborate on later on, you know, how you implement security controls and you you control the the entire perimeter of your organization that's quite, you know, uh, uh, wide when you work with so many partners. And we've also seen a a big surge in ransomware attacks, even against NGOs, particularly around what's called triple, triple extortion ransomware attacks. So, you know, ransomware attacks are actually quite old they would just be like trying to block your files and ask for a ransom and if you didn't pay that was kind of it you know you you would be left with your encrypted files and you have to rebuild your system and what we're we've seen what we've seen in the pandemic is this wave of triple extortion attacks so attackers will first hit a target whether it's a hospital or an NGO and ask for a ransom to be paid generally with a high figure in case of colonial pipeline about I think five five million dollars and then if the organization doesn't pay they're going to go and start leaking files that they have stolen in the process and, and start asking for, again, for money to be paid. If, if not, you know, files are going to be leaked and you're going to be fine, et cetera, et cetera. So better pay us. And if that doesn't work, then they go after the data owners. So in the case of hospitals, they go after patients. For instance, it was a case in Finland, the last time a psychiatric hospital, hospital, the attackers actually leaked, uh, um, the, 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 you know, patient files, the patient's, to pay a couple of hundred uh, dollars. So obviously the ransom goes down when you go from organizational to individual level. But this is the type of scenario that we're also seeing play out in the in the nonprofit sector, which is something that was kind of, I, I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna say like criminals have ethics or anything, but in the past decade felt like criminals were kind of staying off of, of, of nonprofits and hospitals and things that had to do with like human life. And unfortunately, like we 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 don't see that like uh, being maintained. So there's a, a number of groups that are now targeting these organizations. And I think it has to do with the fact that a lot of these weapons, basically cyber weapons are being marketed. You know, you can basically rent them out. So if you had bad intentions in the past, but you don't have good capabilities, you're going to do anything. 
But right now, if you have bad intentions, and you don't have good capabilities, you can rent them out, and then you can you can attack hospitals and NGOs that are you know helping children in the field. Like we, we're, those are the type of attacks. Like you've seen, like I think it was two weeks ago, there was a case of the, the, the we came came to us where like the attackers were basically negotiating with an NGO and telling them, "Oh, you're an NGO, that's great. We're going to give you a discount. Like you're going to get a discounted ransom." It's like, but this is awful. Like these these guys know that they're attacking. They're, at the end of the day, the beneficiaries are, you know, children or or impoverished like populations. And the best you can come up with is, is discount. Like just like yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, long long answers. Oh, that was useful. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, and Anthony, there was a question from Adrian to you on uh, any challenges that you've had in implementing security controls that you can share, please. Thank sure. You. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Adrian, for the answer. It was quite helpful. Um, so, I mean, we're very fortunate. We've got a very sort of astute and sort of engaged senior management team. So we haven't had to face some of the kind of challenges that other organizations might in sort of advocating for security internally. But I mean, as a TSI, you, you have to remain dynamic and, uh, and responsive. And, and that's kind of at conflict with enforced controls. So it's always down to the people. The people are the ones that uh, allow you to remain secure. They're the ones that can cause a breach ultimately. So as you have quite a flexible workforce and uh, flexible programs and development, you have to actually put a lot of work into the awareness and, and maintaining awareness. So it's actually a constant, uh, a constant challenge of just keeping that level of awareness up. And it, it takes a lot of planning. And for example, we have phishing awareness campaigns that go out on a regular basis because it, you, you just have to constantly keep at it because unlike in the commercial sector where you can just turn things off everywhere and uh, restrict what employees can do and people are very focused on what their role is, we have to remain sort of open and dynamic. So we take a bit of the burden of that and trying to keep the awareness up. Now, the other part is sort of adapting what would traditionally be sort of financial controls to account for the fact that we're all home working, we're all distance working and, and things are predominantly online. So if you think about how would an employee change their bank details for payroll, you know, that's that has to change because of cybersecurity and the increasing threat. And it's it's keeping ahead of that and changing it without having to learn from a breach. So the last thing you want to do is learn from your mistakes. So one of the challenges is kind of like the horizon scanning of what what the possible changes are that we need to make to existing controls to kind of future proof them against this new cyber environment. Thanks Anthony. I want to come back to a point that we we were discussing earlier around some of the asymmetries. So I think one of the aspects we were thinking about were the asymmetries between the kind of sophistication of the attacks and, and the attackers and the level of vulnerability of organizations. And there was also a question about whether there are internal asymmetries in some civil society organizations between data around kind of financial data around supporters and the way data of people who uh, work with and are affected by our programs as well. So um, whether we have the same levels of uh, control and security uh, across um, our organizational data sets. So I'd just like to invite some thoughts from any of you on, on either of those uh, aspects. Uh, Suha, just your thoughts on those, please. Yeah, I'd be happy to take a stab at that. So I think in conversations we've had with a lot of nonprofits, there's been quite a demand from particularly donors to sort of have accountability over data practices and ensure that these organizations remain compliant. And so I think, you know, questions around having a privacy policy up on your website 
right? making sure that you know you have a cookie pop-up or something to that effect um, that's definitely something that we're seeing especially larger nonprofits kind of engaging in these conversations I think uh, a lot of the work we do at Apti is looking at sort of pushing the envelope of data governance and looking at concepts of data stewardship where you really look at the beneficiaries of the data so if there's data collected on for example migrant workers or farmers that belong to a particular NGO how do you make sure their data rights are protected if they're sitting here in India and the nonprofit is based in the UK for instance and India may not have a data protection rule, um, you know, uh, data protection law at this point to protect that farmer's data. So I think there has been a heavier focus on, I think, protecting perhaps donor data um, for compliance reasons primarily. And I think there is scope for nonprofits to start to think about this with their beneficiaries and have these conversations in tandem. Um, and it would shift the kind of conversation away, away from fear of, you know, cyber attacks and breaches to start thinking about, you know, what is the value of data and how can we start to sort of employ it in ways that, um, you know, the users themselves who are, you know, part of this NGO or who are benefiting from the services of the NGO from the civil society organization can also have a say in sort of what data is collected on them, what it's being used for, and, and shape some of these governance protocols that Anthony was also you know, referring to when he started as well. So I think um, it, it kind of shifts the power dynamic a little bit. And I think that's the, the conversations we should be having is if you are a farmer and your data is being collected, what is the data being collected for? Do you have a say in that in that context as well? Is it being shared with a financial institution? Can it, you know, can it impact your ability to to get a loan later down the line? And can you as a nonprofit start to have these conversations with that farmer, with that migrant worker? And I think it becomes all the more critical to have these conversations with the people that the data can reflect important realities and decisions for. Um, and one of the learnings for us, and I see one of these, one of the um, attendees is from this organization. We've been doing a lot of work around environmental data and, you know, a lot of this data can be non-personal. And so we think it may not have the same risks attached to it, but it can still have tangible, you know, uh, impacts on the life and livelihood of, of a lot of communities, particularly indigenous communities. And so we were speaking to an organization called the Open Development Initiative that operates also in, you know, a lot of Southeast Asia. Um, and part of what we learned is that um, cybersecurity attacks can look so different for different communities, and they are actually quite well versed in understanding what those attacks and risks can look like at an individual level. And one of the learnings we were able to glean from this conversation is that, you know, and often oftentimes I think we look at um, interventions from a top-down level, so how institutions can protect you know, their emails or their databases or how to, you know, make certain technical choices. But in this context, it was really understanding from this nonprofit that this particular indigenous community didn't even want their data online. So how can you make sure that the data collected on, on them or on this particular community is something that can be maybe stored on a hard drive if they think that that's a safer way of securing their data and that's something that they don't choose to share. Um, how can that be reflected in the organizational organization's policies and protocol um, around not just you know what tech, technical safeguards are employed but also starting to think about this sort of you know before even you know amounting to before thinking about attacks that can be mounted or malicious actors so i think that's just you know that's maybe a, a quick input into sort of how we can change the narrative a little bit and think about um, the beneficiaries of the data um, and 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 start to involve them in these conversations at an early Thanks. And uh, Anthony, I think you had some quick thoughts on the uh, asymmetry questions, please. Yeah, I mean, there's inherently going to be an asymmetry when you have, yeah, things like GDPR, which enforce you to sort of enact these data rights for individuals. But then also, I mean, you do have research standards that do guide how data for particularly project work is handled. And that's typically like data anonymization. But what we're seeing now is increasing 
numbers of national data protection laws that are modeled on GDPR coming out. So there's new data protection bill in India uh, that's been proposed, which does increase these controls. So I think what we're going to see is if an organization doesn't already address that asymmetry internally, it's going to be enforced through uh, national laws and, and legislation. Thanks. Now, we had a we had a question around a recent attack on Twitch, but I'd like to broaden that out a bit. So rather than rather than talk about specific cases, but perhaps, Adrian, just what you see in terms of these high profile attacks that do kind of shake confidence and trust of, of people in organizations do you want to kind of reflect on that um either in a wider context or for or for cso's and the, and the organizations that you work with so I'm, I'm not particularly familiar with the case uh, the twitch case but uh what i can say though is that trust that civil society organizations have spent decades creating on the ground is trust that needs to be transferred now uh, online and they're increasingly engaging with the beneficiaries uh, through online means. And so the type of attacks that you see reported in the news regularly, like the, like the Twitch case, uh, affect um, the, the general trust that people have in online technologies. And so it is perhaps even more difficult for um, NGOs that have very particular and very, um, there's a high need for trust when you engage with vulnerable communities, with, with, uh, you, you manage very sensitive data. You think of uh, you know, NGOs, for instance, operating in conflict zones or working directly with uh, uh, beneficiaries that are themselves very vulnerable, then the need for trust is even higher. And that's definitely something we see in our activities around the cyber peace builders, where it's just not possible to have you know, a volunteer from, from the United States walking with, with an NGO in Kenya and just hoping that I will walk. We have to regional advisors, the people that can really make that kind of trust, trust connection uh, to 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 we to really yeah help 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 out there. So something that we see increasingly through you know disinformation campaigns. We talked a little bit before about the pandemic and the threat landscape changing, and there's been a lot of disinformation going on around you know vaccine research, around around uh, things happening around the virus itself. Um, and that has created a climate of, of general digital distrust. And we, we've talked a lot in the past decade about digital trust. I think it's probably time we start talking about digital distrust and what are the different measures that everyone's taking or not taking are actually fueling digital distrust. And so if we are able to be conscious of everything that we're doing, even as individuals, um, you know, taking the conversation slightly away now from CSOs and, and looking at everyone's role online. When we share each other's you know, WhatsApp messages, the information we're not really sure is valid, then we're actually fueling that type of digital distrust and actually harming cyber peace uh, uh, overall. Thanks, Adrian. I would like to give you the chance to have final, very quick inputs on course to action for civil society or, or anything that you, you see as the main takeaways from, from this conversation for, for our audiences. So we'll have a quick uh, once round. So Suha, please, final thoughts. Yeah, so I want to reiterate that I think when, when you come to conversations around cybersecurity, it invokes a lot of fear um, around what could potentially happen. And I think as much as we need to be preparing for that, I think uh, at the same time, we need to consider, um, you know, shifting the conversation, like I said, um, and exploring avenues to kind of increase the participation around questions of data and informational security with the people that it could actually uh, impact. And so considering them as the center of your interventions around cybersecurity, I think is really important. 
And I think the steps that civil society organizations can take, um, I think it's really about having these conversations also around capacity and capability and exploring not only what you can do technically, but starting to have conversations around data um, and data rights and, and understanding that your beneficiaries do have rights around this data to start with. Um, and also ensuring that you as a civil society actor are not sort of implementing the same um, you know, actions of sort of over extracting data from your beneficiaries. So how can you look at minimizing the risk and harm um, at an earlier stage rather than a later stage? Um, and then I think the, the larger sort of takeaway for us is not just to focus on civil society organizations, but like I said, at an ecosystem level, um, for organizations to be able to take on this work um, and ensure that these rights are protected, um, you know, how do we consider, you know, allocating significant funds um, for nonprofits who are starting to, you know, take this journey on? Uh, because as much as regulation can help articulate articulate those rights and, and, you know, put in focus what needs to be done, I think at the stage of implementation, a lot of nonprofits are still struggling, right? And I think Adrian's organization is doing really great work and being able to, you know, help these organizations identify different mechanisms to start to put that in place. But I think for the most part, um, we need to consider just, you know, as an ecosystem as well, um, how we can start directing support to nonprofits and civil society organizations. And, and like I said, having more conversations about the value of data and ways in which um, communities can access the value of data, as opposed to you know, portraying it as a um, high profile risk to start with. Um, and I think that can, you know, set the foundation for sort of greater resilience around data. And then, and you know, then we can move to conversations around, you know, protection and privacy. But I think if we start from the point of breach, like malicious attacks and breaches and, you know, risks like this, we've gone too far. So I really think we need to set the foundation early on, early on enough. And that's the, the reason I asked Adrian a little bit about when we start to have these conversations with nonprofits and CSOs, and can we do it earlier rather than later in, in the game? So uh, that's what I'll leave you guys with. And thank you for having me. Thanks, Suha. And Adrian, Anthony, very last quick inputs from you, please. I, I think having this conversation, trying to, to bring in more transparency, trying to speak up, uh, trying to share, you know, what are the challenges, the difficulties that everyone's encountering in the civil society sector will help for solutions to emerge uh, and for ecosystems to really be built around around those those challenges. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're you know more than happy to continue having these conversations in different formats. So thanks a lot for having me as well. Final thoughts. Uh, so unlike the commercial sector where kind of the the goals of an organization are, are at odds with another, we are a society and we are there to help each other. So I mean we've supported other organizations that have been through incidences and we're here to continue doing that. There's some great networks for heads of internal audit, safeguarding, physical security, and IT in the UK and uh, and and globally. And I, I think we're primed for another one for uh, cybersecurity. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out and, and seek support, like Adrian mentioned, Cyber Peace Institute, uh, but also we're here as well. I don't know, if, but we're all here as a society to help each other. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Uh, and thank you to all three of you for your thoughtful contributions today and our audience for joining us. There are further resources from our panelist organisations in the background reading on the digital debates pages of the Centre's website and the show notes, or you can indeed get in touch with our contributors via the team here at the Centre. So please do get in touch uh, if you have any follow up questions. Our past six debates are now available on both the Centre's YouTube and podcast channels, so please also go and check those out. And we will next be back in November to debate civil society organisations joining the public discourse on machine learning and artificial intelligence. So please look out for details on how to engage with our content from that debate. 
thank you everyone again for joining and uh, we look forward to continuing these really interesting and important conversations in our organisations and our sector post-debate. <laughs>